10. Expressing Anger Fully The subject of anger gives us a unique opportunity to dive more deeply into NVC. Because it brings many aspects of this process into sharp focus, the expression of anger clearly demonstrates the difference between NVC and other forms of communication. Hurting people is too superficial. I would like to suggest that hitting, blaming, hurting others, whether physically or emotionally, are all superficial expressions of what is going on within us when we are angry. If we are truly angry, we would want a much more powerful way to fully express ourselves. This understanding comes as a relief to many groups I work with that experience oppression and discrimination and want to increase their power to affect change. Such groups are uneasy when they hear the terms nonviolent or compassionate communication because they have so often been urged to stifle their anger, calm down, and accept the status quo. They worry about approaches that view their anger as an undesirable quality needing to be purged. The process we are describing, however, does not encourage us to ignore, squash, or swallow anger, but rather to express the core of our anger fully and wholeheartedly. Distinguishing Stimulus from Cause The first step to fully expressing anger in NVC is to divorce the other person from any responsibility for our anger. We rid ourselves of thoughts such as, he, or she or they, made me angry when they did that. Such thinking leads us to express our anger superficially by blaming or punishing the other person. Earlier we saw that the behavior of others may be a stimulus for our feelings, but not the cause. We are never angry because of what someone else did. We can identify the other person's behavior as the stimulus, but it is important to establish a clear separation between stimulus and cause. We are never angry because of what others say or do. I'd like to illustrate this distinction with an example from my work at a Swedish prison. My job was to show prisoners who had behaved in violent ways how to fully express their anger rather than to kill, beat, or rape other people. During an exercise calling on participants to identify the stimulus of their anger, one prisoner wrote, Three weeks ago I made a request to the prison officials and they still haven't responded to it. His statement was a clear observation of a stimulus, describing what other people had done. I then asked him to state the cause of his anger, when this happened, you felt angry because what? I just told you, he exclaimed. I felt angry because they didn't respond to my request. By equating stimulus and cause, he had tricked himself into thinking that it was the behavior of the prison officials that was making him angry. This is an easy habit to acquire in a culture that uses guilt as a means of controlling people. In such cultures, it becomes important to trick people into thinking that we can make others feel a certain way. Where guilt is a tactic of manipulation and coercion, it is useful to confuse stimulus and cause. As mentioned earlier, children who hear, it hurts mommy and daddy when you get poor grades, are led to believe that their behavior is the cause of their parents' pain. The same dynamic is observed among intimate partners, it really disappoints me when you're not here for my birthday. The English language facilitates the use of this guilt-inducing tactic. To motivate by guilt, mix up stimulus and cause. We say, you make me angry. You hurt me by doing that. I feel sad because you did that. We use our language in many different ways to trick ourselves into believing that our feelings result from what others do. The first step in the process of fully expressing our anger is to realize that what other people do is never the cause of how we feel. The cause of anger lies in our thinking, in thoughts of blame and judgment. So what is the cause of anger? In Chapter 5, we discuss the four options we have when confronted with a message or behavior that we don't like. Anger is generated when we choose the second option, 
whenever we are angry, we are finding fault, we are choosing to play God by judging or blaming the other person for being wrong or deserving punishment. I would like to suggest that this is the cause of anger. Even if we are not initially conscious of it, the cause of anger is located in our own thinking. The third option described in chapter 5 is to shine the light of consciousness on our own feelings and needs. Rather than going up to our head to make a mental analysis of wrongness regarding somebody, we choose to connect to the life that is within us. This life energy is most palpable and accessible when we focus on what we need in each moment. For example, if someone arrives late for an appointment and we need reassurance that she cares about us, we may feel hurt. If, instead, our need is to spend time purposefully and constructively, we may feel frustrated. But if our need is for 30 minutes of quiet solitude, we may be grateful for her tardiness and feel pleased. Thus, it is not the behavior of the other person but our own need that causes our feeling. When we are connected to our need, whether it is for reassurance, purposefulness, or solitude, we are in touch with our life energy. We may have strong feelings, but we are never angry. Anger is a result of life alienating thinking that is disconnected from needs. It indicates that we have moved up to our head to analyze and judge somebody rather than focus on which of our needs are not getting met. In addition to the third option of focusing on our own needs and feelings, the choice is ours at any moment to shine the light of consciousness on the other person's feelings and needs. When we choose this fourth option, we also never feel anger. We are not repressing the anger, we see how anger is simply absent in each moment that we are fully present with the other person's feelings and needs. All anger has a life-serving core. But, I am asked, aren't there circumstances in which anger is justified? Isn't righteous indignation called for in the face of careless, thoughtless pollution of the environment, for example? My answer is that I strongly believe that to whatever degree I support the consciousness that there is such a thing as a careless action or a conscientious action, a greedy person or a moral person, I am contributing to violence on this planet. Rather than agreeing or disagreeing about what people are for murdering, raping, or polluting the environment, I believe we serve life better by focusing attention on what we are needing. When we judge others, we contribute to violence. I see all anger as a result of life alienating, violence-provoking thinking. At the core of all anger is a need that is not being fulfilled. Thus anger can be valuable if we use it as an alarm clock to wake us up, to realize we have a need that isn't being met and that we are thinking in a way that makes it unlikely to be met. To fully express anger requires full consciousness of our need. In addition, energy is required to get the need met. Anger, however, co-ops our energy by directing it toward punishing people rather than meeting our needs. Instead of engaging in righteous indignation, I recommend connecting empathically with our own needs or those of others. This may take extensive practice, whereby over and over again, we consciously replace the phrase I am angry because they, with I am angry because I am needing. Use anger as a wake-up call. I once was taught a remarkable lesson while working with students in a correctional school for children in Wisconsin. On two successive days I was hit on the nose in remarkably similar ways. The first time, I received a sharp blow across the nose from an elbow while interceding in a fight between two students. I was so enraged it was all I could do to keep myself from hitting back. On the streets of Detroit where I grew up, it took far less than an elbow in the nose to provoke me to rage, the second day, similar situation, same nose, and thus more physical pain, but not a bit of anger. Anger co-ops our energy by diverting it toward punitive actions. 
Reflecting deeply that evening on this experience, I recognized how I had labeled the first child in my mind as a spoiled brat. That image was in my head before his elbow ever caught my nose, and when it did, it was no longer simply an elbow hitting my nose. It was, that obnoxious brat has no right to do this. I had another judgment about the second child, I saw him as a pathetic creature. Since I had a tendency to worry about this child, even though my nose was hurting and bleeding much more severely, the second day I felt no rage at all. I could not have received a more powerful lesson to help me see that it's not what the other person does, but the images and interpretations in my own head that produce my anger. Stimulus versus cause, practical implications. I emphasize the distinction between cause and stimulus on practical and tactical as well as on philosophical grounds. I'd like to illustrate this point by returning to my dialogue with John, the Swedish prisoner. John, three weeks ago I made a request to the prison officials and they still haven't responded to my request. MBR, so when this happened, you felt angry because what? John, I just told you. They didn't respond to my request. MBR, hold it. Instead of saying, I felt angry because they, stop and become conscious of what you're telling yourself that's making you so angry. John, I'm not telling myself anything. MBR, stop, slow down, just listen to what's going on inside. John, after silently reflecting, I'm telling myself that they have no respect for human beings, they are a bunch of cold, faceless bureaucrats who don't give a damn about anybody but themselves. They're a real bunch of. MBR, thanks, that's enough. Now you know why you're angry, it's that kind of thinking. John, but what's wrong with thinking that way? MBR, I'm not saying there is anything wrong with thinking that way. Notice if I say there is something wrong with you for thinking that way, I'd be thinking the same way about you. I don't say it's wrong to judge people, to call them faceless bureaucrats or to label their actions inconsiderate or selfish. However, it's that kind of thinking on your part that makes you feel very angry. Focus your attention on your needs, what are your needs in this situation? John, after a long silence, Marshall, I need the training I was requesting. If I don't get that training, as sure as I'm sitting here, I'm gonna end up back in this prison when I get out. MBR, now that your attention is on your needs, how do you feel? John, scared. MBR, now put yourself in the shoes of a prison official. If I'm an inmate, am I more likely to get my needs met if I come to you saying, hey, I really need that training and I'm scared of what's going to happen if I don't get it, or if I approach while seeing you as a faceless bureaucrat? Even if I don't say those words out loud, my eyes will reveal that kind of thinking. Which way am I more likely to get my needs met? John stares at the floor and remains silent. MBR, hey, buddy, what's going on? John, can't talk about it. When we become aware of our needs, anger gives way to life-serving feelings. Three hours later, John approached me and said, Marshall, I wish you had taught me two years ago what you taught me this morning. I wouldn't have had to kill my best friend. Violence comes from the belief that other people cause our pain and therefore deserve punishment. All violence is the result of people tricking themselves, as did this young man, into believing that their pain derives from other people and that consequently those people deserve to be punished. One time I saw my younger son take a 50-cent piece from his sister's room. I said, Brett, did you ask your sister whether you could have that? I didn't take it from her, he answered. Now I faced my four options. 
I could have called him a liar, which would, however, have worked against my getting my needs met since any judgment of another person diminishes the likelihood of our needs being met. Where I focused my attention at that moment was critical. If I were to judge him a liar, it would point me in one direction. If I were to think that he didn't respect me enough to tell me the truth, I would be pointed in another direction. If, however, I were either to empathize with him at that moment, or express nakedly what I was feeling and needing, I would greatly increase the possibility of getting my needs met. We recall four options when hearing a difficult message. 1. Blame ourselves. 2. Blame others. 3. Sense our own feelings and needs. 4. Sense others' feelings and needs. The way I expressed my choice, which in this situation turned out to be helpful, was not so much through what I said, but through what I did. Instead of judging him as lying, I tried to hear his feeling, he was scared, and his need was to protect himself from being punished. By empathizing with him, I had a chance of making an emotional connection out of which we could both get our needs met. However, if I had approached him with the view that he was lying, even if I hadn't expressed it out loud, he would have been less likely to feel safe expressing truthfully what had happened. I would have then become part of the process, by the very act of judging another person as a liar, I would contribute to a self-fulfilling prophecy. Why would people want to tell the truth, knowing they will be judged and punished for doing so? Judgments of others contribute to self-fulfilling prophecies. I would like to suggest that when our heads are filled with judgments and analyzes that others are bad, greedy, irresponsible, lying, cheating, polluting the environment, valuing profit more than life, or behaving in other ways they shouldn't, very few of them will be interested in our needs. If we want to protect the environment, and we go to a corporate executive with the attitude, you know, you are really a killer of the planet, you have no right to abuse the land in this way, we have severely impaired our chances of getting our needs met. It is a rare human being who can maintain focus on our needs when we are expressing them through images of their wrongness. Of course, we may be successful in using such judgments to intimidate people into meeting our needs. If they feel so frightened, guilty, or ashamed that they change their behavior, we may come to believe that it is possible to win by telling people what's wrong with them. With a broader perspective, however, we realize that each time our needs are met in this way, we not only lose, but we have contributed very tangibly to violence on the planet. We may have solved an immediate problem, but we will have created another one. The more people hear blame and judgment, the more defensive and aggressive they become and the less they will care about our needs in the future. So even if our present need is met in the sense that people do what we want, we will pay for it later. 4 Steps to Expressing Anger Let's look at what the process of fully expressing our anger actually requires in concrete form. The first step is to stop and do nothing except to breathe. We refrain from making any move to blame or punish the other person. We simply stay quiet. Then we identify the thoughts that are making us angry. For example, we overhear a statement that leads us to believe that we've been excluded from a conversation because of race. We sense anger, stop, and recognize the thoughts stirring in our head, it's unfair to act like that. She's being racist. We know that all judgments like these are tragic expressions of unmet needs, so we take the next step and connect to the needs behind those thoughts. If we judge someone to be racist, the need may be for inclusion, equality, respect, or connection. Steps to Expressing Anger 1. Stop. Breathe. 2. Identify our judgmental thoughts. 
3. Connect with our needs. 4. Express our feelings and unmet needs. To fully express ourselves, we now open our mouth and speak the anger, but the anger has been transformed into needs and need-connected feelings. To articulate these feelings may require a lot of courage. For me it's easy to get angry and tell people, that was a racist thing to do. In fact, I may even enjoy saying such things, but to get down to the deeper feelings and needs behind such a statement may be very frightening. To fully express our anger, we may say to the other person, when you entered the room and started talking to the others and didn't say anything to me, and then made the comment about white people, I felt really sick to my stomach, and got so scared, it triggered off all kinds of needs on my part to be treated equally. I'd like you to tell me how you feel when I tell you this. Offering empathy first. In most cases, however, another step needs to take place before we can expect the other party to connect with what is going on in us. Because it will often be difficult for others to receive our feelings and needs in such situations, if we want them to hear us we would need first to empathize with them. The more we empathize with what leads them to behave in the ways that are not meeting our needs, the more likely it is that they will be able to reciprocate afterwards. Over the last 30 years I've had a wealth of experience speaking NBC with people who harbor strong beliefs about specific races and ethnic groups. Early one morning I was picked up by a cab at an airport to take me into town. A message from the dispatcher came over the loudspeaker for the cabbie, pick up Mr. Fishman at the synagogue on Main Street. The man next to me in the cab muttered, these kikes get up early in the morning so they can screw everybody out of their money. The more we hear them, the more they'll hear us. For 20 seconds, there was smoke coming out of my ears. In earlier years, my first reaction would have been to want to physically hurt such a person. Instead I took a few deep breaths and then gave myself some empathy for the hurt, fear, and rage that were stirring inside me. I attended to my feelings. I stayed conscious that my anger wasn't coming from my fellow passenger nor the statement he had just made. His comment had triggered off a volcano inside of me but I knew that my anger and profound fear came from a far deeper source than those words he had just uttered. I sat back and simply allowed the violent thoughts to play themselves out. I even enjoyed the image of actually grabbing his head and smashing it. Giving myself this empathy enabled me to then focus my attention on the humanness behind his message, after which the first words out of my mouth were, Are you feeling? I tried to empathize with him, to hear his pain. Why? because I wanted to see the beauty in him, and I wanted for him to fully apprehend what I had experienced when he made his remark. I knew I wouldn't receive that kind of understanding if there were a storm brewing inside of him. My intention was to connect with him and show a respectful empathy for the life energy in him that was behind the comment. My experience told me that if I were able to empathize, then he would be able to hear me in return. It would not be easy, but he would be able to. Stay conscious of the violent thoughts that arise in our minds, without judging them. Are you feeling frustrated? I asked. It appears that you might have had some bad experiences with Jewish people. He eyed me for a moment. Yeah. These people are disgusting. They'll do anything for money. You feel distrust and the need to protect yourself when you're involved in financial affairs with them. That's right. He exclaimed, continuing to release more judgments as I listened for the feeling and need behind each one. When we settle our attention on other people's feelings and needs, we experience our common humanity. When I hear that he's scared and wants to protect himself, I recognize how I also have a need to protect myself and I too know what it's like to be scared. 
When my consciousness is focused on another human being's feelings and needs, I see the universality of our experience. I had a major conflict with what went on in his head, but I've learned that I enjoy human beings more if I don't hear what they think. Especially with folks who have his kind of thoughts. I've learned to savor life much more by only hearing what's going on in their hearts and not getting caught up with the stuff in their heads. When we hear another person's feelings and needs, we recognize our common humanity. This man kept on pouring out his sadness and frustration. Before I knew it, he'd finished with Jews and moved on to blacks. He was charged with pain around a number of subjects. After nearly ten minutes of my just listening, he stopped, he had felt understood. Then I let him know what was going on in me. MBR, you know, when you first started to talk, I felt a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, sadness, and discouragement, because I've had very different experiences with Jews than you've had, and I was wanting you to have much more the kind of experiences I've had. Can you tell me what you heard me say? Man, oh, I'm not saying they're all. MBR, excuse me, hold on, hold it. Can you tell me what you heard me say? Man, what are you talking about? MBR, let me repeat what I'm trying to say. I really want you to just hear the pain I felt when I heard your words. It's really important to me that you hear that. I was saying I felt a real sense of sadness because my experiences with Jewish people have been very different. I was just wishing that you had had some experiences that were different from the ones you were describing. Can you tell me what you heard me say? Man, you're saying I have no right to talk the way I did. MBR, no, I would like you to hear me differently. I really don't want to blame you. I have no desire to blame you. Our need is for the other person to truly hear our pain. I intended to slow down the conversation, because in my experience, to whatever degree people hear blame, they have failed to hear our pain. If this man said, those were terrible things for me to say, those were racist remarks I made, he would not have heard my pain. As soon as people think that they have done something wrong, they will not be fully apprehending our pain. People do not hear our pain when they believe they are at fault. I didn't want him to hear blame, because I wanted him to know what had gone on in my heart when he uttered his remark. Blaming is easy. People are used to hearing blame, sometimes they agree with it and hate themselves, which doesn't stop them from behaving the same way, and sometimes they hate us for calling them racists or whatever, which also doesn't stop their behavior. If we sense blame entering their mind, as I did in the cab, we may need to slow down, go back, and hear their pain for a while more. Taking our time. Probably the most important part of learning how to live the process we have been discussing is to take our time. We may feel awkward deviating from the habitual behaviors that our conditioning has rendered automatic, but if our intention is to consciously live life in harmony with our values, then we'll want to take our time. A friend of mine, Sam Williams, jotted down the basic components of the NBC process on a 3x5 card, which he would use as a cheat sheet at work. When his boss would confront him, Sam would stop, refer to the card in his hand, and take time to remember how to respond. When I asked whether his colleagues were finding him a little strange, constantly staring into his hand and taking so much time to form his sentences, Sam replied, it doesn't actually take that much more time, but even if it did, it's still worth it to me. It's important for me to know that I am responding to people the way I really want to. At home he was more overt, explaining to his wife and children why he was taking the time and trouble to consult the card. Whenever there was an argument in the family, he would pull out the card and take his time. After about a month, he felt comfortable enough to put it away.
Then one evening, he and Scotty, age four, were having a conflict over television and it wasn't going well. Daddy, Scotty said urgently, get the card. For those of you wishing to apply NBC, especially in challenging situations of anger, I would suggest the following exercise. As we have seen, our anger comes from judgments, labels, and thoughts of blame, of what people should do and what they deserve. List the judgments that float most frequently in your head by using the cue, I don't like people who are, collect all such negative judgments in your head and then ask yourself, when I make that judgment of a person, what am I needing and not getting? In this way, you train yourself to frame your thinking in terms of unmet needs rather than in terms of judgments of other people. Practice translating each judgment into an unmet need. Take your time. Practice is essential, because most of us were raised, if not on the streets of Detroit, then somewhere only slightly less violent. Judging and blaming have become second nature to us. To practice NVC, we need to proceed slowly, think carefully before we speak, and often just take a deep breath and not speak at all. Learning the process and applying it both take time. Summary Blaming and punishing others are superficial expressions of anger. If we wish to fully express anger, the first step is to divorce the other person from any responsibility for our anger. Instead we shine the light of consciousness on our own feelings and needs. By expressing our needs, we are far more likely to get them met than by judging, blaming, or punishing others. The four steps to expressing anger are, 1. Stop and breathe, 2. Identify our judgmental thoughts, 3. Connect with our needs, and, 4. Express our feelings and unmet needs. Sometimes, in between steps 3 and 4, we may choose to empathize with the other person so that he or she will be better able to hear us when we express ourselves in step 4. We need to take our time both in learning and in applying the process of NBC. NBC in action. Parent and teen dialogue, a life-threatening issue. In this situation, 15-year-old Bill took a car, without permission, from Jorge, a family friend. He went on a joy ride with two friends and returned the car undamaged to the garage, where its absence had not been detected. Since then, however, Jorge's 14-year-old daughter, Eva, who had gone along for the ride, told her father what had happened. Jorge informed Bill's father, who is now approaching his son. The father has just recently been practicing NBC. Father, so I hear you, Eva, and Dave took Jorge's car without asking. Bill, no, we didn't. Father, in a loud voice, don't lie to me, it'll only make it worse. Then he remembered to first connect to his own feelings and needs in order to stay in connection with his son. Father, you just sit there for a moment, I need to think. Going inside himself, he saw how angry and scared he was. Angry when telling himself, Bill should have known better. And what a liar he's become. Scared when he thinks of all the potential consequences of not only Bill's action, but his own misjudgment of what his son might do. Father, silently to himself, that was stupid of me to assume he knows better. Someone could have gotten killed in this. Then catching himself, oops, I need to translate the label stupid and liar into feelings and needs. For stupid, I guess the feeling is disappointment in myself, I would have liked to think that I knew him better. And as for liar, I'm feeling pretty scared because I want to be able to count on getting accurate information to deal with this situation. Father, out loud, after silence while he mulls over how to begin talking, Bill, 
Are you worried that you'd be punished if you gave me accurate information? Bill, yeah, you're always so mean whenever I do anything you don't like. Father, are you saying you'd like more understanding and fairer treatment for what you do? Bill, oh, sure, like I'm really gonna get fair treatment and understanding from you. Father, silently to himself, boy, do I get angry when he says that. Can't he see how hard I'm trying? I really need a little respect for how hard this is, and I guess also a little caring for how scared I'm feeling. Father, out loud to Bill, sounds to me like you're worried that no matter what you say, you won't be treated fairly? Bill, what do you care about treating me fairly? When something happens, you just want someone to punish. Besides, what's the big deal? Even if we did take the car, no one got hurt and it's back where it was. I mean, this is no major crime wave. Father, are you scared there'll be harsh consequences if you admit to taking the car, and you want to trust that you'll be treated justly? Bill, yeah. Father, allowing time for silence and the connection to go deeper, what could I do to give you that reassurance? Bill, promise to never punish me again. Father, aware that punishment will not help Bill develop consciousness around potential consequences of his behavior, but will only contribute to greater disconnection and resistance, Bill's father expresses willingness to agree to Bill's request, I'd be open to that agreement if you agree to stay in dialogue with me. That is, we talk until I'm satisfied you're aware of all the possible consequences of your having taken that car. However, in the future, if it happens that I'm not confident that you see the potential danger of what you're in for, I might still use force, but only in order to protect you. Bill, wow, great. It really feels good knowing I'm so stupid you have to use force to protect me from myself. Father, losing touch with his own needs, but silently, man, there are times when I could just kill the little, I'm so furious when he says things like that. It really doesn't seem like he cares. Damn, what am I needing here? I'm needing to know, when I'm working this hard, that at least he cares. Father, out loud, angrily, you know, Bill, when you say things like that, I get really pissed off. I'm trying so hard to stay with you on this, and when I hear things like that, look, I need to know if you even want to keep talking with me. Bill, I don't care. Father, Bill, I really want to listen to you rather than fall into my old habits of blaming and threatening you whenever something comes up that I'm upset about. But when I hear you say things like, it feels good to know I'm so stupid, in the tone of voice you just used, I find it hard to control myself. I could use your help on this. That is, if you would rather me listen to you than blame or threaten. Or if not, then, I suppose my other option is to just handle this the way I'm used to handling things. Bill, and what would that be? Father, well, by now, I'd probably be saying, hey, you're grounded for two years, no TV, no car, no money, no dates, no nothing. Bill, well, I guess I'd want you to do it the new way then. Father, with humor, I'm glad to see that your sense of self-preservation is still intact. Now I need you to tell me whether you're willing to share some honesty and vulnerability. Bill, what do you mean by vulnerability? Father, it means that you tell me what you are really feeling about the things we're talking about, and I tell you the same from my end. In a firm voice, are you willing? Bill, okay, I'll try. Father, with sigh of relief, thank you. I'm grateful for your willingness to try. Did I tell you, Jorge grounded Eva for three months, she won't be allowed to do anything. 
How do you feel about that? Bill, oh man, what a bummer, that's so unfair. Father, I'd like to hear how you really feel about it. Bill, I told you, it's totally unfair. Father, realizing Bill isn't in touch with what he's feeling, decides to guess, are you sad that she's having to pay so much for her mistake? Bill, no, it's not that. I mean, it wasn't her mistake really. Father, oh, so are you upset she's paying for something that was your idea to start with? Bill, well, yeah, she just went along with what I told her to do. Father, sounds to me like you're kind of hurting inside seeing the kind of effect your decision had on Eva. Bill, sorta. Father, Billy, I really need to know that you are able to see how your actions have consequences. Bill, well, I wasn't thinking about what could have gone wrong. Yeah, I guess I did really screw up bad. Father, I'd rather you see it as something you did that didn't turn out the way you wanted. And I still need reassurance about your being aware of the consequences. Would you tell me what you're feeling right now about what you did? Bill, I feel really stupid, Dad. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. Father, translating Bill's self-judgments into feelings and needs, so you're sad, and regret what you did because you'd like to be trusted not to do harm? Bill, yeah, I didn't mean to cause so much trouble. I just didn't think about it. Father, are you saying you wish you had thought about it more and gotten clearer before you acted? Bill, reflecting, yeah. Father, well, it's reassuring for me to hear that, and for there to be some real healing with Jorge, I would like you to go to him and tell him what you just told me. Would you be willing to do that? Bill, oh man, that's so scary, he'll be really mad. Father, yeah, it's likely he will be. That's one of the consequences. Are you willing to be responsible for your actions? I like Jorge and I want to keep him for a friend, and I'm guessing that you would like to keep your connection with Eva. Is that the case? Bill, she's one of my best friends. Father, so shall we go see them? Bill, fearfully and reluctantly, well, okay. Yeah, I guess so. Father, are you scared and needing to know that you will be safe if you go there? Bill, yeah. Father, we'll go together, I'll be there for you and with you. I'm really proud that you are willing. 11. Conflict Resolution and Mediation Now that you are familiar with the steps involved in nonviolent communication, I want to address how to apply them in resolving conflicts. These could be conflicts between yourself and someone else, or you may be asked to, or choose to, involve yourself in a conflict between others, family members, partners, co-workers, or even strangers in conflict. Whatever the situation may be, resolving conflicts involves all the principles I outlined previously in this book, observing, identifying and expressing feelings, connecting feelings with needs, and making doable requests of another person using clear, concrete, positive action language. Over the course of several decades, I've used nonviolent communication to resolve conflicts around the world. I've met with unhappy couples, families, workers and their employers, and ethnic groups at war with each other. My experience has taught me that it's possible to resolve just about any conflict to everybody's satisfaction. All it takes is a lot of patience, the willingness to establish a human connection, the intention to follow NBC principles until you reach a resolution, and trust that the process will work. Human Connection In NBC-style conflict resolution, 
creating a connection between the people who are in conflict is the most important thing. This is what enables all the other steps of NBC to work, because it's not until you have forged that connection that each side will seek to know exactly what the other side is feeling and needing. The parties also need to know from the start that the objective is not to get the other side to do what they want them to do. And once the two sides understand that, it becomes possible, sometimes even easy, to have a conversation about how to meet their needs. Creating a connection between people is the most important thing. With NBC, we're trying to live a different value system while we are asking for things to change. What's most important is that every connection along the line mirrors the kind of world we're trying to create. Each step needs to reflect energetically what we're after, which is a holographic image of the quality of relationships we're trying to create. In short, how we ask for change reflects the value system we're trying to support. When we see the difference between these two objectives, we consciously refrain from trying to get a person to do what we want. Instead we work to create that quality of mutual concern and respect where each party thinks their own needs matter and they are conscious that their needs and the other person's well-being are interdependent. When that happens, it's amazing how conflicts that otherwise seem irresolvable are easily resolved. When I'm asked to resolve a conflict, I work to lead the two sides to this caring and respectful connection. This is often the tough part. Once that is accomplished, I help both sides create strategies that will resolve the conflict to both sides' satisfaction. Notice that I use the word satisfaction instead of compromise. Most attempts at resolution search for compromise, which means everybody gives something up and neither side is satisfied. NBC is different, our objective is to meet everyone's needs fully. NBC Conflict Resolution versus Traditional Mediation Let's consider the human connection aspect of NBC again, this time looking at third-party mediation, a person stepping in to resolve a conflict between two other parties. When I'm working with two people, or two groups, that have a conflict they haven't been able to resolve, I approach this very differently from the way professional mediators often approach a conflict. For example, once I was in Austria meeting with a group of professional mediators who work on many kinds of international conflicts, including those between unions and management. I described several conflicts I had mediated, such as one in California between landowners and migrant workers where there had been considerable physical violence. And I talked about mediating between two African tribes, which I discuss fully in my book Speak Peace in a World of Conflict, and a few other extremely entrenched, dangerous conflicts. I was asked how much time I give myself to study a situation I was to mediate. He was referring to the process most mediators use, educating themselves about the issues involved in the conflict and then mediating with those issues as the focus instead of focusing on creating a human connection. In fact, in typical third-party mediation, the conflicting parties may not even be in the same room. Once, as a participant in mediation, our party was in one room and the other party was in another room, with the mediator traveling back and forth between rooms. He'd ask us, what do you want them to do? and he'd take that back to the other side and see if they were willing to do it. Then he would come back and say, they're unwilling to do that, but how about this? Many mediators define their role as a third head trying to think of a way to get everybody to come to an agreement. They are not at all concerned with creating a quality of connection, thus overlooking the only conflict resolution tool I have ever known to work. When I describe the NBC method and the role of human connection, one of the participants at the Austria meeting raised the objection that I was talking about psychotherapy, and that mediators were not psychotherapists. In my experience, connecting people at this level isn't psychotherapy, 
It's actually the core of mediation because when you make the connection, the problem solves itself most of the time. Instead of a third head asking, what can we agree to here? If we had a clear statement of each person's needs, what those parties need right now from each other, we will then discover what can be done to get everybody's needs met. These become the strategies the parties agree to implement after the mediation session concludes and the parties leave the room. When you make the connection, the problem usually solves itself. NBC Conflict Resolution Steps, a quick overview. Before we get deeper into a discussion of some of the other key elements of conflict resolution, let me give you a thumbnail sketch of the steps involved in resolving a conflict between ourselves and somebody else. There are five steps in this process. Either side may express their needs first, but for the sake of simplicity in this overview, let's assume we begin with our needs. First, we express our own needs. Second, we search for the real needs of the other person, no matter how they are expressing themselves. If they are not expressing a need, but instead an opinion, judgment, or analysis, we recognize that, and continue to seek the need behind their words, the need underneath what they are saying. Third, we verify that we both accurately recognize the other person's needs, and if not, continue to seek the need behind their words. Fourth, we provide as much empathy as is required for us to mutually hear each other's needs accurately. And fifth, having clarified both parties' needs in the situation, we propose strategies for resolving the conflict, framing them in positive action language. Throughout, we're listening to each other with utmost care, avoiding the use of language that implies wrongness on either side. Avoid the use of language that implies wrongness. On needs, strategies, and analysis. Since the understanding and expression of needs are essential to resolving conflicts through NVC, let us review this vital concept which has been emphasized throughout this book, and particularly in Chapter 5. Fundamentally, needs are the resources life requires to sustain itself. We all have physical needs, air, water, food, rest. And we have psychological needs such as understanding, support, honesty, and meaning. I believe that all people basically have the same needs regardless of nationality, religion, gender, income, education, etc. Next, let's consider the difference between a person's needs and his or her strategy for fulfilling them. It is important, when resolving conflicts, that we can clearly recognize the difference between needs and strategies. Many of us have great difficulty expressing our needs, we have been taught by society to criticize, insult, and otherwise, miscommunicate in ways that keep us apart. In a conflict, both parties usually spend too much time intent on proving themselves right, and the other party wrong, rather than paying attention to their own and the other's needs. And such verbal conflicts can far too easily escalate into violence, and even war. In order not to confuse needs and strategies, it is important to recall that needs contain no reference to anybody taking any particular action. On the other hand, strategies, which may appear in the form of requests, desires, wants, and solutions, refer to specific actions that specific people may take. For example, I once met with a couple who had just about given up on their marriage. I asked the husband what needs of his weren't being fulfilled in the marriage. He said, I need to get out of this marriage. What he was describing was a specific person, himself, taking a specific action, leaving the marriage. He wasn't expressing a need, he was identifying a strategy. 
I pointed this out to the husband and suggested that he first clarify his and his wife's needs before undertaking the strategy of getting out of this marriage. After both of them had connected with their own and each other's needs, they discovered that these needs could be met with strategies other than ending the marriage. The husband acknowledged his needs for appreciation and understanding for the stress generated by his rather demanding job, the wife recognized her needs for closeness and connection in a situation where she experienced her husband's job occupying much of his time. Once they truly understood their mutual needs, this husband and wife were able to arrive at a set of agreements that satisfied both their needs while working around the demands of the husband's job. In the case of another couple, the lack of needs literacy took the form of confusion between the expression of needs and the expression of analysis, and ultimately led to their inflicting physical violence on each other. I was invited to mediate in this situation at the end of a workplace training when a man tearfully described his situation and asked if he and his wife could speak with me in private. I agreed to meet them at their home, and opened the evening by saying, I'm aware that you're both in a lot of pain. Let's begin with each of you expressing whatever needs of yours aren't being fulfilled in your relationship. Once you understand each other's needs, I'm confident we can work on strategies to meet those needs. Not being needs literate, the husband started off by telling his wife, the problem with you is that you're totally insensitive to my needs. She answered in the same manner, that's typical of you to say unfair things like that. Instead of expressing needs, they were doing analysis, which is easily heard as criticism by a listener. As mentioned earlier in this book, analyzes that imply wrongness are essentially tragic expressions of unmet needs. In the case of this couple, the husband had a need for support and understanding but expressed it in terms of the wife's insensitivity. The wife also had a need for being accurately understood, but she expressed it in terms of the husband's unfairness. It took a while to move through the layers of needs on the part of both husband and wife, but only through truly acknowledging and appreciating each other's needs were they finally able to begin the process of exploring strategies to address their long-standing conflicts. I once worked with a company where both morale and productivity took a dive due to a very disturbing conflict. Two factions in the same department were fighting over which software to use, generating strong emotions on both sides. One faction had worked especially hard to develop the software that was presently in use, and wanted to see its continued use. The other faction had strong emotions tied up in creating new software. I started by asking each side to tell me what needs of theirs would be better fulfilled by the software they advocated. The response was to offer an intellectual analysis that the other side received as criticism. A member on the side that favored new software said, we can continue to be overly conservative, but if we do that, I think we could be out of work in the future. Progress means that we take some risks, and dare to show that we are beyond old-fashioned ways of doing things. A member of the opposing faction responded, but I think that impulsively grabbing for every new thing that comes along is not in our best interest. They acknowledged that they had been repeating these same analyzes for months and were getting nowhere other than increasing tension for themselves. Intellectual analysis is often received as criticism. When we don't know how to directly and clearly express what we need, but can only make analyses of others that sound like criticism to them, wars are never far away, whether verbal, psychological, or physical. Sensing others' needs, no matter what they're saying. To resolve conflicts using NBC, we need to train ourselves to hear people expressing needs regardless of how they do the expressing. If we really want to be of assistance to others, the first thing to learn is to translate any message into an expression of a need. The message might take the form of silence, denial, a judgmental remark, a gesture, or, 
hopefully, a request. We hone our skills to hear the need within every message, even if at first we have to rely on guesses. For example, in the middle of a conversation, if I ask the other person something about what they've just said, and I am met with that's a stupid question, I hear them expressing a need in the form of a judgment of me. I proceed to guess what that need might be, maybe the question I asked did not fulfill their need to be understood. Or if I ask my partner to talk about the stress in our relationship and they answer, I don't want to talk about it, I may sense that their need is for protection from what they imagine could happen if we were to communicate about our relationship. So this is our work, learning to recognize the need in statements that don't overtly express any need. It takes practice, and it always involves some guessing. Once we sense what the other person needs, we can check in with them, and then help them put their need into words. If we are able to truly hear their need, a new level of connection is forged, a critical piece that moves the conflict toward successful resolution. Learn to hear needs regardless of how people express them. In workshops for married couples, I often look for the couple with the longest unresolved conflict to demonstrate my prediction that, once each side can state the other side's needs, it would take no more than 20 minutes for the conflict to come to a resolution. Once there was a couple whose marriage suffered 39 years of conflict about money. Six months into the marriage, the wife had twice overdrawn their checking account whereupon the husband took control of the finances and would no longer let her write checks. The two of them had never stopped arguing about it since. The wife challenged my prediction, saying that even though they had a good marriage and can communicate well, it wouldn't be possible for their historically entrenched conflict to resolve so quickly. I invited her to begin by telling me if she knew what her husband's needs were in this conflict. She replied, he obviously doesn't want me to spend any money. To which her husband exclaimed, that's ridiculous. In stating that her husband didn't want her to spend any money, the wife was identifying what I call a strategy. Even if she had been accurate in guessing her husband's strategy, she had nowhere identified his need. Here again is the key distinction. By my definition, a need doesn't refer to a specific action, such as spending or not spending money. I told the wife that all people share the same needs, and if she could only understand her husband's needs, the issue would be resolved. When encouraged again to state her husband's needs, she replied, he is just like his father, describing how his father had been reluctant to spend money. At this point, she was making an analysis. I stopped her to ask again, what was his need? It became clear that, even after 39 years of communicating well, she still had no idea what his needs were. I then turned to the husband. Since your wife isn't in touch with what your needs are, why don't you tell her? What needs are you meeting by keeping the checkbook from her? Criticism and diagnosis get in the way of peaceful resolution of conflicts. To which he responded, Marshall, she's a wonderful wife, a wonderful mother. But when it comes to money, she's totally irresponsible. His use of diagnosis, she is irresponsible, is reflective of language that gets in the way of peaceful resolution of conflicts. When either side hears itself criticized, diagnosed, or interpreted, the energy of the situation will likely turn toward self-defense and counter-accusations rather than toward resolution. I tried to hear the feeling and need behind him stating that his wife was irresponsible, are you feeling scared because you have a need to protect your family economically? He agreed that this was indeed the case. Admittedly, I had merely guessed correctly, but I didn't have to get it right the first time because even if I had guessed wrong, I would still have been focusing on his needs, and that's the heart of the matter. In fact, when we reflect back incorrect guesses to others, 
it may help them get in touch with their true needs. It takes them out of analysis toward greater connection to life. Have the needs been heard? The husband had finally acknowledged his need, to keep his family safe. The next step is to ascertain that the wife heard that need. This is a crucial stage in conflict resolution. We must not assume that when one party expresses a need clearly, that the other party hears it accurately. I asked the wife, can you tell me back what you heard to be your husband's needs in this situation? Well, just because I overdrew the bank account a couple of times, it doesn't mean I'm going to continue doing it. Her response was not unusual. When we have pain built up over many years, it can get in the way of our ability to hear clearly, even when what is being expressed is clear to others. To continue, I said to the wife, I'd like to tell you what I heard your husband say, and I'd like you to repeat it back. I heard that your husband says he has a need to protect the family, and he's scared because he wants to be sure that the family is protected. Empathy to ease the pain that prevents hearing. But she was still in too much pain to hear me. This brings up another skill that is needed if we are to effectively engage the NBC process of conflict resolution. When people are upset, they often need empathy before they can hear what is being said to them. In this instance, I changed course, instead of trying to have her repeat what her husband had said, I tried to understand the pain she was in, the pain that kept her from hearing him. Especially if there is a long history of pain, it is important to offer enough empathy so that the parties feel reassured that their pain is being recognized and understood. People often need empathy before they are able to hear what is being said. When I addressed the wife with empathy, I sensed that you're feeling really hurt and you need to be trusted that you can learn from past experience, the expression in her eyes showed me how much she needed that understanding. Yes, exactly, she replied, but when asked to repeat back what her husband had said, she answered, he thinks I spend too much money. Just as we are not trained to express our own needs, most of us have not been trained in hearing the needs of others. All this wife could hear was criticism or diagnosis on part of her husband. I encouraged her to try to simply hear his needs. After I repeated his need, for safety for his family, two more times, she finally was able to hear it. Then, after a few more rounds, they were both able to hear each other's needs. And just as I had predicted, once they understood, for the first time in 39 years, each other's needs concerning the checkbook, it took less than 20 minutes to find practical ways to meet both their needs. The more experience I have gained in mediating conflicts over the years and the more I've seen what leads families to argue and nations to go to war, the more convinced I am that most school children could solve these conflicts. If we could just say, here are the needs of both sides. Here are the resources. What can be done to meet these needs? Conflicts would be easily resolved. But instead, our thinking is focused on dehumanizing one another with labels and judgments until even the simplest of conflicts becomes very difficult to solve. NBC helps us avoid that trap, thereby enhancing the chances of reaching a satisfying resolution. Using present and positive action language to resolve conflict. Although I address the use of present, positive action language in Chapter 6, I'd like to present a few more examples to demonstrate its importance in resolving conflicts. Once both parties have connected with each other's needs, the next step is to arrive at strategies that meet those needs. It's important to avoid moving hastily into strategies, as this may result in a compromise that lacks the deep quality of authentic resolution that is possible. By fully hearing each other's needs before addressing solutions, parties in conflict are much more likely to adhere to the agreements they make to each other. 
The process of resolving conflict has to end with actions that meet everybody's needs. It is the presentation of strategies in clear, present, positive action language that moves conflicts toward resolution. A present language statement refers to what is wanted at this moment. For example, one party might say, I'd like you to tell me if you would be willing to, and describe the action they'd like the other party to take. The use of a present language request that begins with would you be willing to, helps foster a respectful discussion. If the other side answers that they are not willing, it invites the next step of understanding what prevents their willingness. On the other hand, in the absence of present language, a request such as I'd like you to go to the show with me Saturday night fails to convey what's being asked of the listener at that moment. The use of present language to hone such a request, for example, would you be willing to tell me whether you will go to the show with me Saturday night? Supports clarity and ongoing connection in the exchange. We can further clarify the request by indicating what we may want from the other person in the present moment, would you be willing to tell me how you feel about going to the show with me Saturday night? The clearer we are regarding the response we want right now from the other party, the more effectively we move the conflict toward resolution. Using Action Verbs In Chapter 6, we touched upon the role of action language in forming NVC requests. In situations of conflict, it is especially important to focus on what we do want rather than what we do not want. Talking about what one doesn't want can easily create confusion and resistance among conflicting parties. Action language requires the use of action verbs, while also avoiding language that obscures, or language that can readily be inferred as an attack. I'd like to illustrate this with a situation where a woman expressed a need for understanding that wasn't being met in her primary relationship. After her partner was able to accurately hear and reflect back the need for understanding, I turned to the woman and said, Okay, let's get down to strategies. What do you want from your partner in order to meet your need for understanding? She faced her partner and said, I'd like you to listen to me when I talk to you. I do listen to you when you talk, the partner retorted. It's not unusual, if someone tells us they'd like us to listen when they are talking, for us to hear accusations and thus feel some resentment. Action language requires the use of action verbs. They went back and forth, with the partner repeating, I do listen, and the woman countering, No, you don't. They told me they'd had this conversation for 12 years, a situation that is typical in conflicts when parties use vague words like listen to express strategies. I suggest instead the use of action verbs to capture something that we can see or hear happening, something that can be recorded with a video camera. Listening occurs inside a person's head, another person cannot see whether it is happening or not. One way to determine that someone is actually listening is to have that person reflect back what had been said, we ask the person to take an action that we ourselves can see or hear. If the other party can tell us what was just said, we know that person heard and was indeed listening to us. In another conflict between a husband and wife, the wife wanted to know that her husband respected her choices. Once she expressed her need successfully, her next step was to get clear on her strategy for meeting that need and to make a request of the husband. She told him, I want you to give me the freedom to grow and be myself. I do he replied, and just as with the other couple, this was followed by a fruitless volley of yes, I do, and no, you don't. Non-action language, such as give me the freedom to grow often exacerbates conflict. In this instance, the husband heard himself being judged as domineering. I pointed out to the wife that it wasn't clear to her husband what she wanted, please tell him exactly what you'd like him to do to meet your need to have your choices respected. I want you to let me, she began.
I interrupted that let was too vague, what do you really mean when you say you want somebody to let you? After reflecting for a few seconds, she arrived at an important understanding. She acknowledged that what she really meant when she said things like I want you to let me be and I want you to give me the freedom to grow is for her husband to tell her that no matter what she did, it was okay. When she got clear as to what she was actually requesting, for him to tell her something, she recognized that what she wanted did not leave him much freedom to be himself and to have his choices respected. And maintaining respect is a key element in successful conflict resolution. Maintaining respect is a key element in successful conflict resolution. Translating no. When we express a request, it's very important to be respectful of the other person's reaction, whether or not they agree to our request. Many mediations I have witnessed consist of waiting for people to wear down to the point where they'll accept any compromise. This is very different from a resolution in which everyone's needs are met and nobody experiences loss. In Chapter 8, we discovered the importance of not hearing no as rejection. Listening carefully to the message behind the no helps us understand the other person's needs. When they say no, they're saying they have a need that keeps them from saying yes to what we are asking. If we can hear the need behind a no, we can continue the conflict resolution process, maintaining our focus on finding a way to meet everybody's needs, even if the other party says no to the particular strategy we presented them. NBC in the Mediator Role Although in this chapter I have offered examples for mediations I've facilitated between conflicting parties, the focus so far has been on how to apply these skills when resolving conflicts between ourselves and another person. There are, however, a few things to keep in mind at those times when we want to use our NBC tools to help two other parties reach a resolution and we take on the role of mediator. Your role, and trust in the process. When entering a conflict process as mediator, a good place to start might be to assure the people in conflict that we are not there to take sides, but to support them in hearing each other, and to help guide them to a solution that meets everyone's needs. Depending on the circumstances, we may also want to convey our confidence that, if the parties follow the steps of NBC, both of their needs will be met in the end. Remember, it's not about us. At the beginning of the chapter, I emphasize that the objective is not to get the other person to do what we want them to do. This also applies to mediating someone else's conflict. Though we may have our own wishes for how the conflict is resolved, especially if the conflict is between family, friends, or co-workers, we need to remember that we are not here to accomplish our own goals. The mediator's role is to create an environment in which the parties can connect, express their needs, understand each other's needs, and arrive at strategies to meet those needs. The objective is not to get the parties to do what we want them to do. Emergency First Aid Empathy As mediator, I stress my intention for both parties to be fully and accurately understood. Despite that, as soon as I express empathy toward one side, it is not unusual for the other side to immediately accuse me of favoritism. At this time, what's called for is emergency first aid empathy. This might sound like so you're really annoyed, and you need some assurance that you're going to get your side on the table? Once the empathy has been expressed, I remind them that everyone will have the opportunity to be heard, and their turn will be next. It is then helpful to confirm they are in agreement with waiting by asking, for example, are you feeling reassured about that? or would you like more reassurance that your opportunity to be heard will come soon? We may need to do this repeatedly to keep the mediation on track. Keep track, follow the bouncing ball. When we are mediating, we have to keep score by paying careful attention to what has been said, making sure both parties have the opportunity to express their needs, 
listen to the other person's needs, and make requests. We also need to follow the bouncing ball, being conscious of where one party left off so we can return to what that party said after the other party has been heard. This can be challenging, especially when things get heated. In such situations, I often find it helpful to use a whiteboard or flip chart to capture the essence of what was spoken by the last speaker who had opportunity to express a feeling or need. This form of visual tracking can also serve to reassure both parties that their needs will be addressed because so often before we have a chance to fully draw out one party's needs, the other will be jumping ahead to express themselves. Taking the time to note those needs in a way that is visible to everyone present can help the listener feel comfortable that their own needs will also be addressed. In this way, everyone can more easily offer their full attention to what is being expressed in the current moment. Keep the conversation in the present. Another important quality to bring to mediation is awareness of the moment, who needs what right now? What are their present requests? Maintaining this awareness requires a lot of practice and being present in the moment, which is something most of us have never been taught to do. As we move through the mediation process, it is likely that we will hear a lot of discussion about what happened in the past and what people want to happen differently in the future. However, conflict resolution can only happen right now, so now is where we need to focus. Keep things moving. Another mediation task is to keep the conversation from getting bogged down. This can happen very easily, as people often think that if they just tell that same story one more time, they will finally be understood and the other person will do what they want. To keep things moving, the mediator needs to ask effective questions, and when necessary, maintain or even speed up the pace. Once, when I was scheduled to lead a workshop in a small town, the event organizer asked if I would help him with a personal dispute related to the division of family property. I agreed to mediate, aware there was only a three-hour window in between workshops to do so. The family dispute centered on a man who owned a large farm and was about to retire. His two sons were at war over how the property was to be divided. They hadn't spoken in eight years even though they lived close to each other at the same end of the farm. I met the brothers, their wives, and their sister, all of whom were involved in this set of complicated legal matters and eight years of pain. In order to get things moving, and to stay on schedule, I had to speed up the mediation process. To keep them from spending time telling the same stories over and over, I asked one of the brothers if I could play his role, then I would switch and play the part of the other brother. Use role play to speed up the mediation process. As I was going through my role play, I joked about wanting to see if I was playing the part right by asking if I could check in with my director. Looking over at the brother whose part I had been playing, I saw something I wasn't prepared for, he had tears in his eyes. I guessed that he was experiencing deep empathy, both with himself for my playing his role, as well as for his brother's pain, which he had not seen until then. The next day, the father approached me, also with tearful eyes, to say that the night before the whole family had gone out to dinner for the first time in eight years. Though the conflict had persisted for years, with lawyers on both sides working unsuccessfully to come to agreement, it became simple to resolve once the brothers heard each other's pain and needs as revealed through the role-playing. If I had waited for both of them to tell their stories, the resolution would have taken much longer. When relying on this method, I periodically turn to the person whose role I'm playing, addressing them as my director to see how I am doing. For a while I thought I had acting talent because of how often I find them crying and saying, that's exactly what I've been trying to say. However, when I started training others in role-playing, I now know that any of us can do it as long as we are in touch with our own needs. No matter what else is going on, 
we all have the same needs. Needs are universal. I sometimes work with people who have been raped or tortured and where the perpetrator is absent, I would assume their role. Oftentimes the victim is surprised to hear me in the role play saying the same thing they had heard from their perpetrator, and press me with the question, but how did you know? I believe the answer to that question is that I know because I am that person. And so are we all. As we apply a literacy of feelings and needs, we are not thinking about the issues, but simply putting ourselves in the other person's shoes, trying to be that person. Getting the part right is not in our thoughts, although from time to time we check in with the director because we don't always get it right. Nobody gets it right all the time, and that's fine. If we're off the mark, the person whom we are playing will let us know one way or another. We are thus offered another opportunity to make a closer guess. Role play is simply putting ourselves in the other person's shoes. Interrupting. Sometimes mediations get heated, with people shouting at or talking over one another. To keep the process on track under such circumstances, we need to get comfortable with interrupting. Once when I was mediating in Israel, and having a difficult time because my translator was too polite, I finally taught him to be nasty, shut them up, I instructed. Tell them to wait until we at least get the translation out before they go back to screaming at each other. So when both sides are screaming or talking at the same time, I insert myself, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I repeat this as loudly and as often as necessary until I regain their attention. When we are grabbing their attention, we have to be quick. If the person reacts with anger when we interrupt, we can sense that they are in too much pain to hear us. This is the time for emergency first aid empathy. Here is what it might sound like, using an example from a business meeting. Speaker, this happens all the time. They've already called three meetings, and each time there is some new rationale as to why it can't be done. Last time they even signed an agreement. Now another promise and it will be just that, another promise. There's little point in working with people who. Mediator, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Could you tell me back what the other person said? Speaker, realizing he had not listened to what had been said, no. Mediator, so you're feeling so full of distrust right now and really need some trust that people will do what they say? Speaker, well, of course but. Mediator, so could you tell me what you heard them say? Let me repeat it for you. I hear the other side saying they have a real need for integrity. Could you just say it back so I'm sure we all understand each other? Speaker, silence. Mediator, no? Then let me say it again. And we say it again. We might view our role as that of a translator, translating each party's message so as to be understood by the other. I ask them to get used to my interrupting for the sake of resolving the conflict. When I do interrupt, I also check that the speaker feels that I'm translating them accurately. I translate many messages even if I am only guessing, but the speaker is always the final authority on the accuracy of my translation. It's important to remember that the purpose of interrupting and grabbing people's attention back in this way is to restore the process of making observations, identifying and expressing feelings, connecting feelings with needs, and making doable requests using clear, concrete, positive action language. The purpose of interrupting is to restore the process. When people say no to meeting face-to-face, I am optimistic about what can happen when we bring people together to express their needs and requests. However, one of the biggest problems I've encountered is simply getting access to both parties. Because it occasionally takes time for a party to become clear about its own needs, 
mediators require adequate access in order for both parties to express, and then receive each other's needs. Oftentimes, what we hear from someone in conflict is, no, there's no use talking, they won't listen. I've tried to talk and it doesn't work. To solve this problem I've sought strategies to resolve conflicts where people in conflict are unwilling to meet. One method that shows promising results relies on the use of an audio recorder. I work with each party separately while playing the role of the other side. If there are two people in our own lives who are in too much pain to be willing to meet, this would be an option for us to consider. As an example, a woman was suffering heavily from a conflict with her husband, particularly from the way he was directing anger toward her. First, I listened in a way that supported her to clearly express her needs and to experience being received with respectful understanding. Then, I took on the role of her husband, and asked her to listen to me as I expressed what I guessed to be the husband's needs. The needs of the conflicting parties having been clearly conveyed in this roleplay, I asked the woman to share the recording with her husband for his reaction. Because I had, in this case, been accurate in guessing the husband's needs, he experienced huge relief when listening to the recording. With the increased trust that came from hearing himself understood, he later agreed to come in so we could work together until the two of them found ways of meeting their needs in mutually respectful ways. When the hardest thing about resolving a conflict is getting the parties together in the same room, the use of recorded role plays may be the answer. Informal mediation, sticking our nose in other people's business. Informal mediation is a polite way to refer to mediating in situations where we've not been invited to do so. In so many words, we're sticking our nose in other people's business. I was shopping in a grocery store one day when I saw a woman strike her toddler. She was about to do it again when I jumped in. She didn't ask, Marshall, would you mediate between us? Another time I was walking in the streets of Paris, a woman was walking alongside me when a rather inebriated man ran up from behind, turned her around, and slapped her in the face. As there wasn't time for me to talk with this man, I resorted to the protective use of force by restraining him just as he was about to strike her again. I inserted myself between the two, and stuck my nose in their business. On another occasion, during a business meeting, I watched two factions in a repetitious exchange, arguing back and forth over an age-old issue and again I stuck my nose in between them. When we witness behaviors that raise concern in us, unless it is a situation that calls for the protective use of force as described in chapter 12, the first thing we do is to empathize with the needs of the person who is behaving in the way we dislike. In the first situation, if we wanted to see more violence directed at the toddler, we could, instead of offering empathy to the mother, say something to imply that she was wrong to hit the child. Such a response on our part would only escalate the situation. We need to be well practiced at hearing the need in any message. In order to be truly helpful to people in whose business we are sticking our nose we need to have developed an extensive literacy regarding needs, and be well practiced at hearing the need in any message, including the need underneath the act of slapping another person. And we need to be practiced in verbal empathy such that the people sense that we are connected with their need. We need to remember, when we choose to stick our nose in someone's business, it's not enough to simply support someone to get in touch with his or her own needs. We aim to practice all the other steps covered in this chapter. For example, after empathizing, we may tell the toddler's mother that we care about safety and have a need to protect people, and then request her willingness to try another strategy to meet her need with her child. We refrain, however, 
from mentioning our own needs regarding the person's behavior until it is clear to them that we understand and care about his or her needs. Otherwise people will not care about our needs nor will they see that their needs and ours are one and the same. As expressed so beautifully by Alice Walker in The Color Purple, one day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it come to me, that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. Unless we make sure that both sides are aware of their own as well as each other's needs, it will be hard for us to succeed when we stick our nose in other people's business. We are likely to get caught up in scarcity thinking, seeing only the importance of our own needs being met. When scarcity thinking then gets mixed with right and wrong thinking, any of us can become militant and violent, and blinded to even the most obvious solutions. At that point, the conflict seems unresolvable, and it will be if we don't connect with the other person by first offering empathy without focusing on our own needs. Summary The use of NVC to resolve conflict differs from traditional mediation methods. Instead of deliberating over issues, strategies, and means of compromise, we concentrate foremost on identifying the needs of both parties, and only then seek strategies to fulfill those needs. We start by forging a human connection between the parties in conflict. Then we ensure that both parties have the opportunity to fully express their needs, that they carefully listen to the other person's needs, and that once the needs have been heard, they clearly express doable action steps to meet those needs. We avoid judging or analyzing the conflict and instead remain focused on needs. When one party is in too much pain to hear the needs of the other, we extend empathy, taking as long as necessary to ensure that the person knows their pain is heard. We do not hear no as a rejection but rather as an expression of the need that is keeping the person from saying yes. Only after all needs have been mutually heard, do we progress to the solution stage, making doable requests using positive, action language. When we assume the role of mediating a conflict between two other parties, the same principles apply. In addition, we keep careful track of progress, extend empathy where needed, keep the conversation focused on the present, moving it forward, and interrupting where necessary to return to the process. With these tools and understanding, we can practice and help others resolve even long-standing conflicts to their mutual satisfaction. 12. The Protective Use of Force when the use of force is unavoidable. When two disputing parties have each had an opportunity to fully express what they are observing, feeling, needing, and requesting, and each has empathized with the other, a resolution can usually be reached that meets the needs of both sides. At the very least, the two can agree, in goodwill, to disagree. In some situations, however, the opportunity for such dialogue may not exist and the use of force may be necessary to protect life or individual rights. For instance, the other party may be unwilling to communicate, or imminent danger may not allow time for communication. In these situations, we may need to resort to force. If we do, NBC requires us to differentiate between the protective and the punitive uses of force. The thinking behind the use of force. The intention behind the protective use of force is to prevent injury or injustice. The intention behind the punitive use of force is to cause individuals to suffer for their perceived misdeeds. When we grab a child who is running into the street to prevent the child from being injured, we are applying protective force. The punitive use of force, on the other hand, might involve physical or psychological attack, such as spanking the child or saying, how could you be so stupid? You should be ashamed of yourself. 
when we exercise the protective use of force, we are focusing on the life or rights we want to protect, without passing judgment on either the person or the behavior. We are not blaming or condemning the child who rushes into the street, our thinking is solely directed toward protecting the child from danger. For application of this kind of force in social and political conflicts, see Robert Irwin's book, Building a Peace System, the assumption behind the protective use of force is that people behave in ways injurious to themselves and others due to some form of ignorance. The corrective process is therefore one of education, not punishment. Ignorance includes, 1, a lack of awareness of the consequences of our actions, 2, an inability to see how our needs may be met without injury to others, 3, the belief that we have the right to punish or hurt others because they deserve it, and, 4, delusional thinking that involves, for example, hearing a voice that instructs us to kill someone. The intention behind the protective use of force is only to protect, not to punish, blame, or condemn. Punitive action, on the other hand, is based on the assumption that people commit offenses because they are bad or evil, and to correct the situation, they need to be made to repent. Their correction is undertaken through punitive action designed to make them, 1, suffer enough to see the error of their ways, 2, repent, and, 3, change. In practice, however, punitive action, rather than evoking repentance and learning, is just as likely to generate resentment and hostility and to reinforce resistance to the very behavior we are seeking. Types of Punitive Force Physical punishment, such as spanking, is one punitive use of force. I have found the subject of corporal punishment to provoke strong sentiments among parents. Some adamantly defend the practice, referring to the Bible, spare the rod, spoil the child. It's because parents don't spank that delinquency is now rampant. They are persuaded that spanking our children shows that we love them by setting clear boundaries. Other parents are equally insistent that spanking is unloving and ineffective because it teaches children that, when all else fails, we can always resort to physical violence. My personal concern is that children's fear of corporal punishment may obscure their awareness of the compassion that underlies parental demands. Parents often tell me that they have to use punitive force because they see no other way to influence their children to do what's good for them. They support their opinion with anecdotes of children expressing appreciation for seeing the light after having been punished. Having raised four children, I empathize deeply with parents regarding the daily challenges they face in educating children and keeping them safe. This does not, however, lessen my concern about the use of physical punishment. Fear of corporal punishment obscures children's awareness of the compassion underlying their parents' demands. First, I wonder whether people who proclaim the successes of such punishment are aware of the countless instances of children who turn against what might be good for them simply because they choose to fight, rather than succumb, to coercion. Second, the apparent success of corporal punishment in influencing a child doesn't mean that other methods of influence wouldn't have worked equally well. Finally, I share the concerns of many parents about the social consequences of using physical punishment. When parents opt to use force, we may win the battle of getting children to do what we want, but, in the process, are we not perpetuating a social norm that justifies violence as a means of resolving differences? In addition to the physical, other uses of force also qualify as punishment. One is the use of blame to discredit another person, for example, a parent may label a child as wrong, selfish, or immature when a child doesn't behave in a certain way. Another form of punitive force is the withholding of some means of gratification, such as parents curtailing allowances or driving privileges. In this vein, 
The withdrawal of caring or respect is one of the most powerful threats of all. Punishment also includes judgmental labeling and the withholding of privileges. The costs of punishment. When we submit to doing something solely for the purpose of avoiding punishment, our attention is distracted from the value of the action itself. Instead, we are focusing upon the consequences, on what might happen if we fail to take that action. If a worker's performance is prompted by fear of punishment, the job gets done, but morale suffers, sooner or later, productivity will decrease. Self-esteem is also diminished when punitive force is used. If children brush their teeth because they fear shame and ridicule, their oral health may improve but their self-respect will develop cavities. Furthermore, as we all know, punishment is costly in terms of goodwill. The more we are seen as agents of punishment, the harder it is for others to respond compassionately to our needs. When we fear punishment, we focus on consequences, not on our own values. Fear of punishment diminishes self-esteem and goodwill. I was visiting a friend, a school principal, at his office when he noticed through the window a big child hitting a smaller one. Excuse me, he said as he leapt up and rushed to the playground. Grabbing the larger child, he gave him a swat and scolded, I'll teach you not to hit smaller people. When the principal returned inside, I remarked, I don't think you taught that child what you thought you were teaching him. I suspect what he learned instead was not to hit people smaller than he is when somebody bigger, like the principal, might be watching. If anything, it seems to me that you have reinforced the notion that the way to get what you want from somebody else is to hit them. In such situations, I recommend first empathizing with the child who is behaving violently. For example, if I saw a child hit someone after being called a name, I might empathize, I'm sensing that you're feeling angry because you'd like to be treated with more respect. If I guess correctly, and the child acknowledges this to be true, I would then continue by expressing my own feelings, needs, and requests in the situation without insinuating blame, I'm feeling sad because I want us to find ways to get respect that don't turn people into enemies. I'd like you to tell me if you'd be willing to explore with me some other ways to get the respect you're wanting. Two questions that reveal the limitations of punishment. Two questions help us see why we are unlikely to get what we want by using punishment to change people's behavior. The first question is, what do I want this person to do that's different from what he or she is currently doing? If we ask only this first question, punishment may seem effective, because the threat or exercise of punitive force may well influence someone's behavior. However, with the second question, it becomes evident that punishment isn't likely to work, what do I want this person's reasons to be for doing what I'm asking? We seldom address the latter question, but when we do, we soon realize that punishment and reward interfere with people's ability to do things motivated by the reasons we'd like them to have. I believe it is critical to be aware of the importance of people's reasons for behaving as we request. For example, blaming or punishing would obviously not be effective strategies if we want children to clean their rooms out of either a desire for order or a desire to contribute to their parents' enjoyment of order. Often children clean their rooms motivated by obedience to authority, because my mom said so, avoidance of punishment, or fear of upsetting or being rejected by parents. NBC, however, fosters a level of moral development based on autonomy and interdependence, whereby we acknowledge responsibility for our own actions and are aware that our own well-being and that of others are one and the same. Question 1. What do I want this person to do? Question 2. What do I want this person's reasons to be for doing it? The protective use of force in schools. 
I'd like to describe how some students and I used protective force to bring order into a chaotic situation at an alternative school. This school was designed for students who had dropped out or been expelled from conventional classrooms. The administration and I hope to demonstrate that a school based on the principles of NBC would be able to reach these students. My job was to train the faculty in NBC and serve as consultant over the year. With only four days to prepare the faculty, I was unable to sufficiently clarify the difference between NBC and permissiveness. As a result, some teachers were ignoring, rather than intervening in, situations of conflict and disturbing behavior. Besieged by increasing pandemonium, the administrators were nearly ready to shut down the school. When I requested to talk with the students who had contributed most to the turbulence, the principal selected eight boys, ages 11 to 14, to meet with me. The following are excerpts from the dialogue I had with the students. MBR, expressing my feeling and needs without asking probing questions, I'm very upset about the teacher's reports that things are getting out of hand in many of the classes. I want very much for this school to be successful. I'm hopeful that you can help me understand what the problems are and what can be done about them. Will, the teachers in this school, they fools, man. MBR, are you saying, Will, that you are disgusted with the teachers and you want them to change some things they do? Will, no, man, they is fools because they just stand around and don't do nothing. MBR, you mean you're disgusted because you want them to do more when problems happen. This is a second attempt to receive the feelings and wants. Will, that's right, man. No matter what anybody do they just stand there smiling like fools. MBR, would you be willing to give me an example of how the teachers do nothing? Will, easy. Just this morning a dude walks in wearing a bottle of wild turkey on his hip pocket plain as day. Everybody's seen it, the teacher, she's seen it but she's looking the other way. MBR, it sounds to me, then, that you don't have respect for the teachers when they stand around doing nothing. You'd like them to do something. This is a continued attempt to fully understand. Will, yeah. MBR, I feel disappointed because I want them to be able to work things out with students, but it sounds like I wasn't able to show them what I meant. The discussion then turned to one particularly pressing problem, that of students who didn't want to work disturbing those who did. MBR, I'm anxious to try to solve this problem because the teachers tell me it's the one that bothers them the most. I would appreciate your sharing whatever ideas you have with me. Joe, the teacher got to get a rattan, a stick covered with leather that was carried by some principals in St. Louis to administer corporal punishment. MBR, so you're saying, Joe, that you want the teachers to hit students when they bother others. Joe, that's the only way students gonna stop playing the fool. MBR, still trying to receive Joe's feelings, so you doubt that any other way would work. Joe, nods agreement. MBR, I'm discouraged if that's the only way. I hate that way of settling things and want to learn other ways. Ed, why? MBR, several reasons. Like if I get you to stop horsing around in school by using the rattan, I'd like you to tell me what happens if three or four of you that I've hid in class are out by my car when I go home. Ed, smiling, then you better have a big stick, man. MBR, feeling certain I understood Ed's message and certain he knew I understood, I continue without paraphrasing it that's what I mean. I'd like you to see I'm bothered about that way of settling things. I'm too absent-minded to always remember to carry a big stick, and even if I remembered, I would hate to hit someone with it. Ed, 
you could kick the cat out of school. MBR, you're suggesting, Ed, that you would like us to suspend or expel kids from the school? Ed, yeah. MBR, I'm discouraged with that idea, too. I want to show that there are other ways of solving differences in school without kicking people out. I feel like a failure if that was the best we could do. Will, if a dude ain't doing nothing, how come you can't put him in a do-nothing room? MBR, are you suggesting, Will, that you would like to have a room to send people to if they bother other students? Will, that's right. No use they being in class if they ain't doing nothing. MBR, I'm very interested in that idea. I'd like to hear how you think such a room might work. Will, sometimes you come to school and just feel evil, you don't want to do nothing. So we just have a room students go to till they feel like doing something. MBR, I understand what you are saying, but I'm anticipating that the teacher will be concerned about whether the students will go willingly to the do-nothing room. Will, confidently, they'll go. I said I thought the plan might work if we could show that the purpose was not to punish, but to provide a place to go for those who weren't ready to study, and simultaneously a chance to study for those who wanted to study. I also suggested that a do-nothing room would be more likely to succeed if it was known to be a product of student brainstorming rather than staff decree. A do-nothing room was set up for students who were upset and didn't feel like doing schoolwork or whose behavior kept others from learning. Sometimes students asked to go, sometimes teachers asked students to go. We placed the teacher who had best mastered NBC in the do-nothing room, where she had some very productive talks with the children who came in. This setup was an immense success in restoring order to the school because the students who devised it made its purpose clear to their peers, to protect the rights of students who wanted to learn. We used the dialogue with the students to demonstrate to the teachers that there were other means of resolving conflicts besides withdrawal from a conflict or using punitive force. Summary In situations where there is no opportunity for communication, such as in instances of imminent danger, we may need to resort to the protective use of force. The intention behind the protective use of force is to prevent injury or injustice, never to punish or to cause individuals to suffer, repent, or change. The punitive use of force tends to generate hostility and to reinforce resistance to the very behavior we are seeking. Punishment damages goodwill and self-esteem, and shifts our attention from the intrinsic value of an action to external consequences. Blaming and punishing fail to contribute to the motivations we would like to inspire in others. Humanity has been sleeping and still sleeps, lulled within the narrowly confining joys of its closed loves. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, theologian and scientist.